We're going to be in Luke 23 this morning. Turn there. Let me say, say a special word of thanks to our musicians and all of our like AV folks. Um, you know, on a on a holiday like today, they, they've been here since seven. You know, so uh, very thankful for their service to us and uh, enabling us to come together and sing and uh, worship. And uh, for those who aren't able to be here to watch on the live stream, just very thankful. Uh, if you are here for the first time, we have been on a journey for the last uh, six, seven weeks um, since Ash Wednesday. Uh, Christians all around the world have been, uh, have set aside those 40 days, not counting Sundays, uh, prior to Easter uh, to do what Jesus did as he prepared for his ministry, which is he fasted and he prayed. And so that season known as Lent uh, has been in practice since right after Mardi Gras, since Ash Wednesday. And we have been fasting and praying in different ways and uh, studying and just kind of plotting our course so that today didn't just sneak up on us, you know. And I hope that the more you have engaged that season that you would really feel that today is different because you've been like ready for it, you know. Um, and so on Sundays, I've been teaching through uh, the, the last things that Jesus said when he was on the cross. Uh, we know from what is written in the scriptures, we know of seven things that he said while he was hanging there on the cross. And so today brings us to the end of that series. We look at the seventh statement that he made. Um, and so we're in terms of the timeline, uh, this will pick up on Friday, on Good Friday. So I'll start in verse 44. It was about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That was it. That was his final statement. Um, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now there's a couple of things going on here that I think are very important for us. Um, the, the first thing that, that came to mind and like studying through it is that in this moment, into your hands I commit my spirit, that Jesus is not only, like it's not just a dying statement, he is laying down his life. And he told his disciples and us through the word in John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. It's my own will. It's my own accord. I'm going to lay it down because I want to lay it down. And that is really significant. One, in part, it's like, just shows the authority that Jesus has. They're like, no, you, no one's going to take it from me. But I, but I will die, and it'll be my choice to lay it down. That self-sacrifice that we have been singing about and that we uh, reference so much is seen here in this moment as he hands over his life, entrusting himself to the Father. You know, outside, like in the, the world around us, there's a lot of opinion about the crucifixion and his death and that kind of thing. And people who reject it and don't believe that it has anything to do with God, 
they try to minimize it and just say, well, he was just, uh, this was just another like troublemaking rebel rouser, uh, just a rabbi stirring the pot. And so the Jewish leaders conspired against him and they convinced one of his disciples to betray him. They paid him off and they kind of greased the wheels a little bit. And the Roman courts, you know, just kind of didn't really function super right. And they just kind of like manipulated it to get rid of this guy who was just causing trouble. This was just another execution of a criminal. Um, And that's, I don't want to say that that's fine, but like that is an opinion that's out there. But for us, as the people of God, we, we have to look at this the way the scriptures describe it. And the scriptures describe it as God laying his life down for the salvation of his sons and his daughters. And so this is not something that was taken from him. This is something that he laid down. And so as he lays his life down, notice specifically what he says. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a very like, trusting thing to do. Uh, I don't know if, you ever, if you've ever had like surgery or an operation or something like that. But it's weirdly vulnerable, isn't it? Like I had my I had appendicitis years ago, and it's just the weirdest moment where you're like the surgeon comes in, he's like, "Okay, cool, we're gonna uh, we're gonna knock you out, and then I'm gonna take your appendix out, and then uh, then you'll wake back up and you'll be appendix free." And you're just like, oh, "Okay, you know, this is your uh, anesthesiologist. They're gonna make sure that we don't give you too much or too little." Oh, okay. That's cool. Um, this is the team. Oh, y'all are the te- y'all are my team. Okay, cool. Uh, and then they just like okay, count backwards from a hundred, and you're like a hundred nine, and then you're done. And then you come out of it, and you're, you don't have an appendix anymore. It's just like the weirdest thing to entrust yourself to this surgical team to get it all right, you know. And my team was like, look, we do like a billion of these a year, so like it's going to be fine. Uh, but still, it's like you had no mind before. Like that's really, really strange. To entrust yourself is difficult. When Peter, like in First Peter chapter two, he he describes it this way. He's talking about the crucifixion, verse twenty-two. He says that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That Jesus was in this continual entrusting himself mode to the Father. Now there's something that we really need to, like, like a theological concept we need to jump into in order for this to probably be as, maybe as rich as it could be. Um, and if you've been around before, you've heard me talk about this. But, um, so Jesus had two natures. Jesus, uh, Father, God exists as uh, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. They've always existed. And so Jesus has the nature of God where he is all-knowing and all-powerful and fully present everywhere. And he's eternally existed and he will eternally exist. Like all those big God qualities, Jesus has 100% of them. And then... Uh, around Christmas time, we start to sing about the fact that Jesus added to that this like 100% human nature as well. He didn't 
he didn't give up the God nature and take on the human nature. He has two natures. And so that nature, that's where he like had to be born and he had to learn how to eat and how to walk. That's why Jesus needed to take naps. And uh, that's why Jesus at times didn't know things. It says that he grew in wisdom and in stature in favor with God, in favor with man. And so he grew in wisdom. So Jesus had to learn how to read and write or how to walk or how to do certain things. Joseph was a stonemason, and so Jesus had learned some of those things. That he grew physically, that he grew in his relationship with God, he grew socially and all that kind of stuff. And so in all the ways that you and I are human, Jesus was also human. And in all the ways that God is God, Jesus was also God. Both of those together. That is mysterious, and we don't really understand how it works, but we know that he's fully both at all times. But the scriptures seem to point to, and there's different ways to view this, um, but scriptures seem to point to either all the time or almost all the time. Jesus, through his humility, didn't, didn't access his divine nature but only just lived within his human nature. Now, he could have, but he didn't. And so there are times, which is why like, he had to learn how to do things and that kind of stuff. And there's this one point in Matthew, uh, he's talking about like, some future things, and they're like, tell us when this is going to happen. And Jesus says this, he says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So like, what do you mean? What do you mean you don't know? That points to the fact that Jesus was operating as a human, choosing not to draw from his divine nature. And I'll tell you why I think that is very important for us. It's because it's so easy to look at Jesus and to and to have this, this understanding of him training us to be like him, but to kind of feel like that's impossible. You're like, well, yeah, well, he was God. Like it tells us in Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in this, all the same ways that we are, and yet he never sinned. And it's so easy to be like, well, of course he was God, so that's how that happened. But if he wasn't accessing his divine nature, what that means is that he was living the same way that you and I live. He was living dependent on the Father to guide him. He was living dependent on the power of the Spirit to enable his efforts to walk in holiness. It means that he was having to live by faith and not by sight, just like we are. And for that to be true makes Jesus incredibly relatable, which is why he looks at you and me and he says, hey, you can do, you can do this kingdom of God thing. Like you really can. Because he knows how to do it because he fought the battle. And now he's empowering us and showing us how to do it. So when we see him living his life, we're not looking at something that is impossible. We're looking at how we were created to live. He's like, this is, this is the real you right here. The real you is generous. The real you is compassionate. The real you is forgiving. The real you is a servant. The real you is like, a, does like have faith and believe that God is who he says he is. That's, that's the real version of you. Sin messed, messed us all up. And so Jesus is showing us the us that we were always created for. Now, 
if we take all that, if Jesus is not drawing from his divine nature, he's, he's humbled himself, he's living as a human, and we pull that into this moment, when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, it means that he had to die the same way that you and I have to die, in faith. Like believing that God the Father would stick to the plan and raise him from the dead. That's us, right? We will die in faith. We will take our last breath trusting that God is waiting on us on the other side, right? And to me, that changes this moment a little bit. He gets to the point, he gets to the end, and his previous last statement was, it is finished. And now, I'm all yours. And he breathed his last. Now, I think that's pretty incredible. But if you look in your Bible, where it says, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, there might be a little footnote that points to Psalm 31. And so, once again, we find Jesus quoting scripture he quoted scripture in the desert quoted scripture now twice on the cross and if you if you recall in the jewish community uh they first of all they memorized the scriptures then they memorized the psalms and if you wanted to reference one you would just pull out a line of the psalm Instead of having to say the whole thing, you would say one line, and, and the, your community, it would, it would kind of like launch the whole sentiment. So rather than me quoting Psalm 23 to you, I could just say, the Lord is my shepherd. And if you're familiar with the 23rd Psalm, the whole, all the goodness of that jewel comes to you, right? And so when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm that is about feeling forsaken because your circumstances look terrible, yet, yet you are believing that you are not forsaken. That's, what he, that's the point of that. So now here he is again. He's quoting a psalm. Now Psalm 31, if you were to go in and read it, it is written by David. It is another psalm of lament where he is um, expressing his feelings to God about what's going on. And so for him to quote that one line would have brought the whole thing to mind. I want to just read a couple of excerpts from that psalm to give you a sense of what it would have been like if you were Jewish and you were watching the crucifixion and for Jesus to say these words or more likely for him to sing it because it's a psalm. So the thought of Jesus speaking from the cross is one thing. The thought of him singing from the cross, very, very different. So as I read these couple of excerpts, I want you to think about what he's going through, what he has been going through in these moments, and see if this doesn't greatly inform what's happening. For you are my rock, my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they've hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. A few verses later, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. 
For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. There are a few verses later. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. A few verses later. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. (laughs) But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. He entrusted himself to the Father to stick to the plan and to raise him from the dead. And then he died. Like he, he died a real death. And I think that there's, that can seem strange at times because he just said that it was finished. And that everything he had come to do, he had done. So if that's true, why did, why did he then have to die if it was completed? And if, there's lots of, that's been written about this. Lots of like why Jesus had to die stuff out there. Lots of crazy stuff out there too, so don't just go Google it. But, and, and much better sermons than this one have been preached on it. Let me just, let me just lay one possibility or not one possibility, but one uh, perspective to keep in mind. And some of you have heard me talk about this before, but if we were to think of think of it, in, think of sin and death in terms of a virus. I think it could be helpful. So, if if you're a parent and you take your child to the doctor, like something just isn't right, and the doctor comes to you and says. Your child has is your child's very sick, and there's a virus, and this virus will take the life of your child. Um, and, and some of you have been in situations like that, and I, so I don't say that lightly at all. Uh, but if a doctor were to say, "But we we figured out a way though where we can take the virus, we can transfer the virus from your child to you," uh, you'd probably have a mom and dad arguing over who got to do it. You know, because that's what love would do, right? Love would motivate you to take that from your child into yourself as a parent. Now, sin and death, more severe than a virus, but let's go with that analogy a little bit. That every one of us made in the image of God have, like we're carriers of this virus. And so Jesus comes to us and says, uh, there's a way to take that virus out of you and transfer it to me. And he says, I'm on board with it. Are you on board with it? 
that that is a part of what's happening on Good Friday as that virus is being transferred. Even, even the Jewish community understood it because when they brought their sacrificial lambs and they handed it to the priest, they would put their hands on the head of the animal to symbolically transfer their guilt to the animal. And then the animal would be sacrificed. So this was, this was a known kind of scenario. And so if Jesus is taking the virus on, then what, ha- what does the virus do? Well, one, the virus kills. And so in one sense, he's letting the virus run its course. But in killing him, the virus also dies. And so when he goes to the grave, the virus goes to the grave. And when Jesus walks out of the grave, the virus does not come with him. That's why we needed him to die, is we needed the virus to die. And it may be more complex than that in some ways, but it might actually be even simpler than that in other ways. And so when he entrusted himself to the Father, and he laid down his life, and he's like, okay, all the work is is completed, now I just need to die so that the virus can die. That... From his own words, he says, no, there's no greater expression of love than that. Imagine being the child whose parent died because of your virus that got transferred to them. And then take that and blow that up on this infinite scale of him doing that for the most rebellious things that we have done. Him doing that for the worst parts of humanity and all that. Pretty, pretty amazing. And so for the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, the Lamb had to die. And Jesus knew that. And so he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He laid down his life and trusted himself to the Father, and he died a real death. That was Friday. Now, we know it's Sunday, and if you guys know me very well, you know that one of my pet peeves is everyone trying to jump too quickly to Sunday. I'm like, we got to hang out on Friday a little bit. We've hung out on Friday, but it is Sunday. And they went to the tomb, and he's, it's empty. And I think that this partners with Friday in a way that is really, really, really beautiful. So if Jesus died in faith... Uh, there's this great lyric in the, in the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, where it talks about our faith becoming sight. And that's a poetic way of referencing uh, Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That right now, faith is about what we can't see, but then after we cross over, we don't need faith anymore because we can see it all. Like we have not seen these things yet firsthand, but yet we will be able to see it. So Jesus died in faith, and as the resurrected one, he's now walking in the promises of God that were kept. And I think something that it might be helpful for us to think about is this, is how Good Friday and Sunday, how they are like communicating two very much compatible ideas. On Good Friday, Jesus says, right before he commits his spirit to the Lord and entrusts himself, he says, it is finished. 
If you were here last, last Sunday, you might re- recall this, that that, that phrase, uh, it breaks into three English words, but Jesus would have just said one word. Does anybody remember what it was? Tetelestai. There we go. Tetelestai. And so that, that word shows up in a few different contexts. Like in like everyday life, there's like a common word. So if you, if you, were, if you paid a debt in full, they would stamp tetelestai on the receipt. The debt is paid. When they were looking for the sacrificial lamb to bring on the Day of Atonement, when they found the right lamb, they would say, tetelestai, it is finished. We found the lamb. When the priest would, would emerge after the sacrifice, he would declare... It is finished. And he would say it in Hebrew, but that's, it's the same exact, same exact word. It is finished. When an artist was working on a, a work of art, when the work of art was complete, when it was a ma- true masterpiece, they would say it is finished. It was the beginning of a whole new era. And so when Jesus says that, He's kind of pulling all those terms in there. He's saying it's finished. The debt is paid. The sacrifice uh, has been the, the sacrifice has been made. The masterpiece is complete. It is time for the new era to begin. On Sunday, the resurrection—that's God the Father's tetelestai moment. That's Him saying the debt is paid. The sacrifice is accepted. The masterpiece is complete. The new era has begun. Jesus says it on Friday. The Father says it on Sunday. Those fit together. And they fit together in a way that changes our lives completely. Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 15. He says, If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus on Friday is saying, it is finished, and he stays dead, it was not finished. The debt is not paid. Sacrifice was not accepted. The masterpiece is not done. The new era has not begun. That we are still in our sins. We should be still sacrificing animals. We should still be waiting for the Messiah. And there are millions of people in that camp. That's who Paul is writing to in part. He goes on to say, Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Jesus is not alive, then those who have gone ahead of us and died believing all of this were like they're in serious trouble because they are believing a lie. They are believing something that has not been validated. They're believing that it's finished when it is not yet finished. Then he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if 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 none of this is true and this life is all that we have then what a sorry situation that is and that isn't that so much of like the world around us you know people living like this is it make it a, you know and I don't want to go into all that 
And so Paul's like, hey, that like Friday is a huge deal. Sunday tells us something about Friday, though. Like the resurrection is this validation that it really is finished. So he goes on, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he uses that fact, and I don't think that's like a, as a matter of fact, this is not like, no, I think he's like, no, it's a fact. Like you think about Jesus' very, very public death and burial. And then when you track the rest of the Gospels and you look at from the resurrection moment until the ascension, there are hundreds of people that saw him. Hundreds. Many people were martyred because they, they like refused to like say otherwise. You know? like they were killed because they were like, no, 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 heck, he was alive. And they're like, hey, if you don't admit this is a conspiracy, we'll kill you. And like, oh, I, you might have to kill me then because I can deny a lot of things, but that's one of them I can't deny. He was dead and now he's not. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of a crop that was, like was going to tell you what the rest of the crop was going to be like. So the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep means in part that Jesus' death and resurrection, he's the first fruits of us who are going to die. That whatever happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. And so in this moment that we're studying, this last saying where Jesus commits his spirit to the Lord and he breathes his last, his spirit went to be with the Lord and his body eventually went into the, into the tomb. And that happens with us. Whenever I breathe my last, my spirit will go to be with the Lord and my body will, will whatever will happen with that, we'll figure it out. Or somebody will figure it out, I guess. But the same thing. Body into the ground, spirit with the Lord. And then Jesus was resurrected, and so those were joined together. And that is what my future looks like. That I will die in faith, that my spirit will go to be with him, and that my body will go into the ground. And when Jesus returns, those will be reunited together in the resurrection of the dead. That that's what my future is. And if you're in Christ, that's your future as well. He's the first fruits, those who have fallen asleep. And so everyone who has died, who believes this, they all have died in faith. And our belief is that they are being kept with the Lord while their bodies are in the ground or wherever, wherever they have found their resting place. And when Jesus returns, they will be reunited. Like that is... Like, our hope right there. Verse 21, for as by a, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That this, like this is why the, like this changes everything. And so what Paul is saying is we have to recognize that everything Jesus is saying on Friday is being backed up and reinforced and affirmed on Sunday by the fact that he is alive. 
And that being a historical fact, an undeniable, like real thing, gives us everything that we really need. Like that, that is a transformative truth. Because what that tells me is that this life right, right now is not all that there is. Therefore, I can pour myself into what he has for me. I don't have to worry about what if I don't get to do this or this or this or this? Or what if my life doesn't look this way or this way or this way? Because I will have an eternity to do all those things. I've said it before, like I, I like envy people who do, do a lot of traveling to all these like crazy places of the world. I'm like, I'll probably never get to do a lot of that stuff. And the Lord's like, yes, you will. You'll have a whole eternity to explore the entire new earth. It's better, it'll be better than this one. Don't worry about that. Keep your hand to the plow. Focus on what I have for you now. Embrace where you are right now. And like, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And he's like, hey, live by faith, not by sight, not by your feelings, not by comparison to other people. Live by faith, not by the economy, not by the price of gasoline, not by inflation, not by who's the president or who's at war or what this newscast says or what this newscast says or whatever. And by faith, that just like Jesus walked the earth, dependent on the Spirit, dependent on the Father, he, he knows how to do that. And now, well, where is he now? Well, he's ascended to the Father, and he's seated at the right hand. He is interceding for us. He has your back. He's like, no, I know how difficult this can be, but uh, it's going to be fine. Because Jesus went first. Look, I'm going, to go, I'm going to go into the grave and I'm going to come out on the other side alive and restored and I'm going to like, just wave you on. Like, it's okay. You just keep coming this way. Don't fear death. Don't fear life. <laughs> Don't fear people. Don't fear money. Don't fear those. Just keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Jesus has shown us that it's okay because he's made it safe. And close with this. In John 11, so way before all this Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday happened, we find out that Jesus has been telling us the whole time. Like he's just been forecasting it over and over and over again. In John 11, his very good friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus is there with Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, and it's really, really incredible dialogue. And Jesus, uh, I don't have time to get into all the background of it, but he makes this statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And he looks at her and he's like, I am the embodiment of resurrection. Essentially, he's like, he is pointing forward to what we're talking about today.
In other words, like I'm the reason that you can live with hope. But this is not the end. And when you believe in me, anyone who believes in me will never die. Like we'll we'll have like a physical death to our like human existence. Like these these broken bodies of ours are going to give out at some point. That's not what he's talking about. But through the resurrection, do we believe that we will continue to live onward? That though our bodies go into the ground and our souls go to be with, with the Lord, do we believe that they will be reunited together again in, in this incredible resurrection of the sons and daughters of God into this new earth where that virus, even the traces of it, that we still kind of have uh, lingering with us would not be in effect anymore. He's saying, do you believe this? Like, do you believe? And she said, yes. And I feel like this, like, this is one of those days where we really, like, it's an opportunity for us to say, do I believe this? But I'm not just in a, like, salvation sense, but, like, do I believe this to the point where it is changing the way that I live? Because if I believe that this is true, it changes how I make decisions. It changes if I'm operating in heavenly wisdom or earthly wisdom, it changes how I spend my money. It changes how I spend my time. It changes how I interact with people. It changes everything. As I said, I can just put my hands to the plow and say, Lord, what do you, what's the work today? You know? And I think that we all have to ask ourselves that question. Like, do I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do I believe that because I believe in him, I will never really die. Therefore, I can change the way that I live now. And I hope that you'll ask yourself that. And for some of you, it could, it could be in that, in that primary sense. Like maybe you have never told him that you believe that when he said it's finished on Friday and God confirmed it on Sunday, that like, you're like, yeah, I'm on board with that whole thing. I believe that you came to forgive me of my sins and invite me into that resurrection life. Maybe you've never, you're like, I don't know, I never really told him that. The good news is you can just do that. You can just tell him. You don't, I don't, you don't have to repeat a prayer after me. You don't have to go to like a class or anything like that. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, there's, a, there's like a cross on each side of him. And one of those guys had that very same moment. And Jesus didn't say, well, you need to go to the new members class first and do a couple of discipleship things and make sure you really understand all your theology. He's like, nope, today, brother. We will be in paradise together today. And so that, that's between you and the Lord. And if that is something that happened, like if that's a part of your day today, I hope that you don't leave here without telling somebody about it. Come tell me, I'll be hanging around. Tell somebody, that's very, very important. And I hope that somebody brings you to me. But if, you have, if, you, if that's something that you have done before, then maybe the, like, do I believe this, is like a, is this changing my life? Yeah. Is the, the fact that Jesus is alive, is it changing my life? It, it might be. It might maybe not be. But the idea is for this, little by little by little by little by little, to be changing us. And even though I don't think you really get to the point where you're like, I've totally arrived as a Christian, you know, that we are able to say, hey, I, I, 
God's doing something in my life. I got a long way to go. But it's like the hymn. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow, right? Like there's no, there isn't any second guessing of that. Like it's going to be okay because he's alive. If he weren't alive, I'd be in trouble. But he is alive, so I'm not. And so I hope that that we will all um, like, like really em- embrace the power of what today is. In a primary sense, how incredible and powerful God is. I mean, who overcomes death? Like, that's amazing. But out of love, who would take that virus on themselves? And then take that virus to the grave. And then raise up again and look at all of us who didn't do a thing to get in here and say, come on. Like, this, it's the free gift of God. Come on. So that no one can boast. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not your own works, the gift of God. So probably at this point, like you've like, you're, you're probably like, oh, dude, quit talking. I want to sing. Quit talking. I want to pray. Quit talking. I want, I need, I need to go to the table. We've been having the communion tables open all, all through Lent just as a possible response. So you don't have to come down here, but to think about God offering you like in this little little symbolic meal, something that goes way beyond symbolism. Saying, here, here's my body broken for you, my blood poured out for you. It's like Jesus is the one, I'm not sure who's serving today, but just pretend that it's Jesus saying, here, do you, do you want this? And there's something about taking that into our bodies that's like, yes, I, I want the grace. I want, the, I want all the, the power. Like I want to live that like resurrection life. And so that could for you be one of the responses this morning. There's not a pressure to do it. So we're going to give you options. We're going to sing. You can come pray. You can take communion. You can do a little bit of all those. You can do whatever. But when a few minutes when we say, the, we say our blessing over each other and we go, you know, there's a whole lot waiting for you outside of here. And so in these next few minutes, let's, let's just stay here. You know, let's stay in the sweet spot for a few minutes longer. Let's stand together as our musicians come back. Let me pray for us. Lord, I think about the, in Isaiah 53, where you, says, you say that um, by your stripes we are healed. I know that's come to mean like this, the stripes that were put onto your back through the, the scourging and the brutality of crucifixion. And we know that some really beautiful things came out of how dark and terrible that day was. So God, I thank you for taking that virus onto yourself and that through that we get healing. What that really does is that just really shows us exactly who you are. Shows us your compassion and your love and your like the degree that you're willing to go to for the rescue of your sons and the rescue of your daughters. 
So Lord, we look at the example of Christ as he entrusted himself to you. We just want to step into that. Entrusting ourselves to you, not only, not only in this moment, but also in where the future goes. And as we sing this, this morning in response, and the first song has a lot to do about what we've been singing about, but the second song shifts gears. It points us forward into what's ahead. And God, you've given us all this that we could be transformed. This would change the way that we live, that our faith is very full of information. So it's not a blind faith. It's a very, very informed faith. So as we pray, as we sing, as we respond in different ways, may you be honored by us as we just continue in that same place I read earlier where they just grabbed onto your feet and worshiped you. That would be our response to of humility and to exalt you above all else. We love you. We thank you. And I pray this in your name. Amen.